Well, this morning, friends, we're looking at James chapter 3. And you'll find it on page 1214 in the church Bibles. It'd be really useful if you have it there open in front of you. Now, the first two verses of chapter 3 both unsettle and encourage me. Verse 1, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Ouch. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. Phew. We all stumble in many ways. Yes, we do. Thank you, James. Thank you. Perfection, in its strictest sense, is unattainable because it would mean that we were in control of everything all the time and no one is in control of everything all the time. We all stumble in many ways, says James. The truth is that this side of heaven, we will never be perfect, but that doesn't mean we should be content with imperfection just because you can't control everything doesn't mean that you needn't control anything. And the most difficult part of our human personality, our human anatomy, to control, as a certain cabinet minister has discovered this last week, is the tongue, that little flap of muscle and flesh between your teeth. In comparison to other animals, the tongue is uncontrollable, or so it seems. They seem to be able to be tamed very easily. Although I once made a fool of myself trying to lead a pony out of my garden that had gained entrance because someone had left a gate open and it was having a wonderful time with my brassicas. So waving a, a bunch of grass under its nose and patting its rear end with increasing force brought no effect whatsoever. Much to her amusement, my wife was watching from an upstairs window and she brought down the baby's reins, put them over the pony's head and gently led it back into its pasture. Well, you can do that with animals. But James says, no, you can't do it with a tongue. You can control an animal, you can control a huge ship with a rudder, but the tongue is uncontrollable. Verses 3, 4, and 5. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example, although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants them to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest fire is set, up, is set by a, a, a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil amongst the parts of the body. Now, it seems to me that we might think that James is going over the top. A restless evil full of deadly poison, he calls the tongue. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his, fire, uh, of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. 
Is he going over the top? Is he overstating it? I don't think he is. After my grandfather's funeral, there was a terrible family argument, and my mother and her sister didn't speak to one another for 12 years. It's not true to say that sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but names will never hurt me. Names do hurt. Oh, yes, they do. A single remark about a young person's size can trigger anorexia. It's easy to be oversensitive, of course, but one disparaging comment about something someone has done can kill that person's belief in themselves for good. I feel very sorry for Andrew Mitchell. I know he was wrong. Whether he called the policeman a pleb or not, he should have behaved with dignity. But who amongst us has not got stressed and said something we regret or said it with too much emphasis? All the same, Jesus' words in Matthew 12, 36 and 37 make a very sober point, don't they? I tell you that men will have to give an account of, on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. So how do we control the tongue? How do we ameliorate careless speech? Well, I think the answer lies in something that Jesus said a few verses before, when he was talking to the Pharisees, and he was being very uncomplimentary to them. You know, we have this picture of the Lord Jesus, partly, I suppose, because of that hymn, Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild. Well, listen to what he says in verse 34 of Matthew 12. You brood of vipers! How can you who are evil say anything good for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that's the center of it, isn't it? Where do the words come from? Don't really come from the mouth. They come from the heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, as I've said before, Luther didn't like this letter of James. You see, Luther, I have great sympathy with Luther. I think he must have been a bit like me. Um, he was easily, easily discouraged. He was easily depressed. He, he, he felt so often that he disappointed God. And the letter of James seemed to kind of reinforce that. It's almost as James... Almost as if James is constantly saying, come on, behave yourself, pull your socks up. But that isn't the message of James at all. It isn't. No. Have you ever promised yourself that tomorrow you won't repeat the mistakes of today? I think I do that every day. Would be lovely, wouldn't it? If we could be better people by trying harder. But you know that has two consequences. Either we become disappointed because we fail or proud because in some measure we succeed. But we're putting the cart before the horse because it's not the behavior that needs to be changed. It's the heart that needs to be changed because it's the heart that controls the behavior. 
Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, says Jesus. It's our relationship with God that needs constantly to be refreshed and renewed. And the only way for that to happen is for us to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and let him change us from the inside. Now, you may not remember this. In fact, I'm sure you don't, really. Um, But in the first chapter of James, I highlighted a verse to remember and, and to think about. I said it was a hinge verse. Verse 21 of chapter 1. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil, the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Now, it seems as though James is saying, people be good, behave yourselves, stop all this naughtiness, you're letting the side down, buck up your ideas and try harder. But that is not the message of James. He's not saying that at all. He is pointing out the inconsistency of uh, claiming to be a Christian and not living the Christian life. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. But he says, humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Now, what's he talking about? He's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in each of our hearts. Because when we When we respond to God's love, that is evidence that the Holy Spirit is alive and active in our hearts. In fact, unless he was, we couldn't respond to the love of God in Christ. We couldn't do that. Sometimes I leave my mobile phone overnight to charge, for the battery to charge. And I go there in the morning and I switch it on and the battery is still dead. And I think to myself, oh, help, the batteries. And then I look at the uh, socket, the electric socket, and I realize that although I plugged it in last night, I didn't switch it on. Well, if I don't switch it on, the power isn't going to come back into the battery, is it? The power can't come into the battery unless it's switched on. You couldn't even turn in faith and love and response to the Lord Jesus Christ unless the Holy Spirit had already drawn you and was already active in your life. He's there. The word is implanted in you, and the word will grow. Because as Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing even to the division between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judging the thoughts and actions of the heart. The word has been implanted in you. He is at work in you, and that is what is important. This little leaflet here that we gave out on the 8th of September is headed a work in progress. And God is at work in your life and in mine. And you must never think that he's given up on you because he won't give up on you. Because the word says, he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until it is thoroughly finished on the day of Christ. He's not going to give up on you and he's not going to give up on me. And rather than Polishing hothouse virtues. Have you seen my humility? I'm so proud of my humility. What a contradiction. Instead of polishing hothouse virtues, what we need to do is to come in our brokenness, in our need, and say, 
Holy Spirit, change me. Do the work inside that I can't do myself. Yesterday afternoon, I was in um, Haywards Heath, and I had taken a form into a bank to, uh, to be processed, and I was told very politely uh, that I needed my passbook as well. And I'm afraid I wasn't very polite. So I said to the young lady, um, are you absolutely sure that when I bring my passport next time, you will give me the check? Yes, she said, you're absolutely sure. Because I didn't want to go back down again the second time and be told that I had to bring my passport or something. You know the experience? But I said it with too much emphasis. And I came home and I said to my wife, I've joined the ranks of grumpy old men. And she said, you've been there for a long time. It's so easy, isn't it? So easy and yet so difficult to control. Well, the way is not by trying harder. The way to control our impulses, not only our tongues, but every kind of impulse that is grieving to the Holy Spirit is to submit them to him and say, Lord, I can't deal with this myself, but I know you can. In my uh, readings from Mark's Gospel. I'm following Mark's Gospel at the moment in the Scripture Union notes. Um, I read on Friday morning the story of Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus. If you remember, when he was calling Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, they tried to shut him up, but he called all the louder, and someone said to him, come on, Jesus wants to see you, because Jesus said, bring him to me, bring him to me, don't shut him up, bring him to me. Blind Bartimaeus stood there before the Lord Jesus, and Jesus said to him, what do you want to do for me? Uh, What do you want me to do for you? What is it that you want me to do for you? Lord, that I may receive my sight, he said. And the question that the notes asked was very simply, what do you want Jesus to do for you? And I sat there praying that he would go on changing me from the inside That's what the Christian faith is all about. And the word has been implanted in you. And it is doing its work, his work. Okay, back to verse 9 of chapter 3. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth can come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring, my brothers? Can a a, a fig tree bear olives or grapevines, figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. It's very, very disconcerting, isn't it, when you hear something you're not expecting. And telephone answering machines are a real trap for the unwary. I once tried to leave a message for a rather intimidating district secretary in the days when we had district councils. I dialed what I thought was his number, but instead of his gruff, rather intimidating voice on the other end of the line, someone with a fake American accent announced, Thunderbirds are go! Leave your message! And I thought, good heavens, that's not Jasmine. Whoever else it is, it's not not whom I expect. Well, James says, we don't expect to hear someone who prays like an angel in church 
berating the neighbors. No, we don't, but so often we do, don't we? And it's very sad. Verses 13 to 16 center our thoughts once again on the real problem. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good deeds, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, that's where it comes from, in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. It's from the heart that the evil comes. But verse 17, oh, verse 17, is a wonderful verse. It's one of the most wonderful verses in the whole of the New Testament. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it, of genuine Christian conduct. First of all, it is pure. In other words, it's not tainted with hypocrisy. Then it's peace-loving. It doesn't stir up strife and unrest. Then it's considerate and prepared to listen to others. Then it's submissive. In other words, it doesn't seek to dominate. Then it's full of mercy and good fruit. Its readiness to forgive brings healing to other people's brokenness. I was looking yesterday at a site on the internet about restorative justice. And there's a wonderful video. You might like to look at it yourself. Just put in restorative justice. You'll get a, 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 a choice of, of sites. A young woman had been raped. and She said she wanted to meet her attacker. She was told not to expect anything from him. No, she said, I don't expect anything from him at all. I just want to tell him what he did to me. I want to tell him rather than hear things from me. And the meeting proceeded. They have to sign a confidentiality clause before uh, any kind of meeting in, in, in of this nature takes place. So she, she didn't give details of what was said, apart from right at the end. She said, I looked at him, and I could see what was really going on in his mind. I could see that he was sorry. And she said, I wasn't planning on doing this. But right at the end, I said, I forgive you. I forgive you. She said as she went home on the train, something just fell away from her heart. All the anger that she felt had melted away. Now, the consequences in her life hadn't melted away, and she will never, ever be free of the consequences of that appalling and unforgivable, in the technical sense of the word, act. But nevertheless, she was liberated, and later on, 
she was told that as far as that man was concerned, that was the release mechanism for him to begin a new life. So the wisdom that comes from heaven is full of mercy and good fruit because its readiness to forgive others brings healing to their brokenness. And then finally, it's impartial. No, sorry, penultimately. It's impartial. It doesn't take sides. Finally, it's sincere. You can trust it, and unbelievers know they can take it seriously. Recently, Two stories about people being hurt and refusing to forgive have dominated the headlines. The Hillsborough families have demanded criminal prosecution for those who've covered up the truth all those years ago, and the family of the newspaper vendor who died in the protest after being pushed to the ground have vowed to go on pursuing the policeman they blame for his death. Now, we can understand how these people feel, of course, the urge to blame and exact retribution is a very natural one, and there's no doubt that justice must be done. But the gospel doesn't speak of that kind of justice. It speaks of that kind of justice. When the blood of the Lamb of God took away the sin of the world, when he who knew no sin was made sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that is the justice of which the gospel speaks. In any case, the gospel speaks not only of justice. It speaks of grace, and it's only grace that can mend broken lives. And so the last verse of the chapter closes with a quiet but triumphant statement of that principle. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. That's what happened in that young woman's life and in the life of the man who had so dreadfully hurt her. They had raised a harvest of righteousness. When our Savior suffered in our place, he made it possible for sinful men and women to be brought home to their heavenly Father. He opened the way back to fellowship with God and satisfied divine justice once and for all. With his own blood, he wrote P-A-I-D across the ledgers of heaven. But the currency with which that debt was paid was love. Human beings, you see, love to blame. God loves to forgive. And the really good news is that nothing we have ever done or will ever do will change that.